Today we're going to take a look at uh, Jesus the King. Michael had last week, Messiah, and, and uh, Dustin will be next week in our little tr- uh, trilogy from the uh, God-Man. Um, so um, I was joking with myself that uh, when you're running track, you want to put your probably one of your best runners first. Thank you, Michael. And you put your slowest runner in the middle, <laughs> and then you have your you have your uh, your post. Is that what it's called? Anchor. Anchor. It's called the anchor at the end. So Dustin will clean it up next week. Anchor next week. So let's go ahead and pray and uh, open up our time. Lord Jesus, we're just so grateful to be able to uh, come worship before you, just to acknowledge you as King, just to be able to lift you up during this time of Christmas. Father, the carols we sing, the songs, the uh, time that we spend with each other, all reflect back to you. Father, you've done so much for us, and we just appreciate the time in this building. We thank you for the people that put up the trees and, and uh, made us feel warm and welcome. And, and uh, we thank you for Pam, who takes care of doing a lot of the cleaning. And uh, um, we just think of Alfredo, always helping out in the back. Father, so much that goes into this. Father, that uh, we just appreciate you and the time that we have together. We just uh, pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we've always seen movies. I was trying to come up with a good example of ones that start at the end. Um, Saving Private Ryan is the only one I could really think of where, you know, they're older now, they have gray hair, they're at the end of the movie, and, you know, they're kind of reflecting on the life that they had before them. And in Saving Private Ryan, he's, um, you know, talking about his comrades, the people that he died with in the movie, and then all of a sudden it kind of goes gray, you know, you've seen these movies, and then it kind of goes back, you know, 40 years to the war or something like that, and then all of a sudden you see Tom Hanks, you know, um, you know, was it Commander Miller or something like that in the movie, and the the whole story begins. Well, that's kind of what I want to do this morning. Um, if we want to turn to Psalm 24, we'll start there. And to kind of set the table for Psalm 24, God's judgments have ceased. It's just an amazing event. The Lord Jesus has returned to earth and has put down all of his en- enemies. Christ is now marching. He said he's going to come back from the, to the Mount of Olives. He's going to go through the Kidron Valley up to the East Gate in Jerusalem. Right? This is all done. So that he can reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a procession like none other walking up to that East Gate. And so it starts off in here. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And now going forward here, it's possibly even a song. And it is a song by Petra. If you knew the rock band back Petra back in the 1990s or something like that, um, amazing. So you can put that on your playlist on the way home. It would be a great time of fellowship. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Now the masses arrive at the east gate. And you can almost imagine, excuse me, like a clarion calling up to the gate and yells to the gatekeeper, 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the gatekeeper yells back. He said, Who is this king of glory? The Lord, so the clarion would call back, The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And it finishes, Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So that's what we're going to do now. So now this is when the movie kind of fades to gray and we go back. And we kind of see where things, you know, how did this all come together? Who is this king of glory? So now we're going to, I want to start now and kind of go into some Old Testament references that kind of uh, look into this. So the central theme as I'm doing that, you can turn to 2 Samuel 7. The central theme to all the Old Testament prophecies was the Messiah. I haven't printed them off. I thought Dustin could go through them later. I've got six pages here. <laughs> Old Testament prophecies. Each book, you know, of where it kind of points to Christ. We've done that. We've done Samuel. We've done Kings. We've done uh, Mike's talk from Psalms. We've done so many things here. Um, so I thought this was fun. This would be a good, you know, if you want this copy of this, it'll be a great devotional for anybody there. Um, so to go through it, Second Samuel 7, uh, verses 12 and 13. Here God is making a covenant to David through the prophet Nathan that lays out God's intention for the lineage that will continue in bringing about Jesus, the promised king. So here he is, David talking through Nathan. Um, chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are complete, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you. Who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom? He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We actually covered that. I remember when we were in Second Samuel, and we covered this, this very thing. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God established his covenant through David that someone would always be on the throne. And we're going to see this here in a little bit. We're going to see the whole line going all the way through, all the way to Christ. Christ is, will live forever. So Christ is always on the throne. So we have a continual king all the way through. Um, and then uh, last week, Mike took us through uh, Psalm chapter 2. I'm going to turn there real quick. Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand like it will do any good. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters, or chains, apart and cast away their cords, that whatever those bottom straps might be, from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I surely will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this is, again, I just wanted to go that. I know we did it last week, but I thought it was critical. It was a great verse um, to kind of transition into where we're going. You are my son today. I have begotten you. I have installed you, my king, upon Zion, my holy mountain. 
And then being Christmas time, we can't go without. You want to turn to Isaiah 9-6. So I grew up, I think I've mentioned this before, in a family of musicians. My parents all sang in Handel's Messiah. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's amazing. It's also four hours long. And for a kid, shoot me now. (laughs) Right. But now that I'm older and much wiser, sure. Yeah, that's enough, Addy. Um, to be able to look upon these key verses, to be able to look upon what those songs actually were and what they actually meant, I mean, it just sent, literally sends chills up my spine sometimes when I read this. It's absolutely amazing. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. All of God, all in one person. You see, unto us a child is born. Mentions his humanity. Dustin will probably go there next week. And unto us a son is given. Did you catch that? The second establishes his deity. John 3.16. Most of us know that. For God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, verse 7. Of the increase of His government and His peace, there shall be no end. We talked about that in the last verse. Upon the throne of David, we talked about about that in the Second Samuel reference, the throne of David, and upon His kingdom to order it, and to establish it with justice, and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I was just like, oh, wow. And then if you put that to music, it's absolutely incredible. <laughs> so put that on your playlist. Second song, you know, so you're going to go from Petra right to the Messiah on your playlist tonight, okay? That'll, that'll blow you away. So now we're going to turn to the New Testament and look for some accounts in there. And primarily we're going to be in Matthew. And I have to say thank you for Mike because he actually gave me a cheat sheet (laughs) coming into this whole thing. And um, Dustin's going, I didn't get a cheat sheet. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I just had some key verses. And this was actually um, one of, you know, some of these references that are in here. Um, So today we're going to be primarily in the book of Matthew. So, of all the Gospels, Matthew primarily focuses on Jesus' sovereignty, on his kingship um, and the kingdom um, of our Lord. Um, The book was written to the Jews. That's critical to know, critical to remember, because knowing his audience, Matthew knowing his audience, was critical in how he approached this as a Gospel. Matthew paid particular attention to the words that Jesus spoke. Whereas, for example, Mark focused on Jesus as the servant, what Jesus did. We look at Matthew, who really focused on what he said, what what were the words that he did. So briefly, what do we know about Matthew? Oh, one of I mentioned that, and then I didn't say. In Mike's notes, he had said, Matthew has 53 references to the kingdom of God in his gospel. 53. As opposed to 45 in Luke, still pretty good, 18 in Mark, and only 3 in John. <laughs> So it's like, so that's why we're going to spend some time in, in Matthew here. What do we know about Matthew? What do you remember? He's the tax collector, right? Um, pretty much everyone despised him as a tax collector, 
And it was like, I had to kind of read into that a little bit. It was like, why? I mean, yeah, that's his job. But why was he absolutely despised? You know, why would Jesus pick someone in that position to be able to carry his message in this gospel going forward? Um, one, he's Jewish, but he worked for Rome. And that's critical. Rome occupied the land, land and anyone working for the Romans was actually kind of viewed as, I mean, if you're Jewish, but you work for the Romans, yeah, it's not going to go too good for you. It's not going to go well. They had this idea of tax farming that I was reading about. Tax farming is where you could take all of the community and the rich or the well-to-do, a senator, a councilman, could actually take a portion of the community and divide it up and actually be responsible for that portion. We talk about what we do with ballot harvesting. This is tax farming. So I could take, like, I think you live here, I could take this whole, you know, uh, Paris Boulevard subdivision out here or something like that. And if I was a senator, I could take that under my wing and say, I will be responsible for this area. So I could collect the taxes that Rome needs, but anything over and above, I can kind of keep for myself. This is where things got a little shady. And so people knew that and they were just despised. It just did not go well for him. So I kind of have to think, what was going on in Matthew's head? What was going on um, when Jesus approached him? And all Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 9 was, follow me. So it's like, you have this life. And I'm just trying to put in context what was going through Matthew's head. Where was he spiritually to be able to just, okay, I'll go. Closed his books. And up, and off he went. So I'm like, okay, that's incredible. This is amazing. Where did he go? One commentator said he lost a comfortable job, but he found a destiny. He lost a good income, but he found honor. He lost a comfortable, he lost a comfortable security, but he found an adventure the like of which he had never dreamed. So now when we look at Matthew 1.1. We'll just start at the very beginning. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And from here he goes on for the rest of chapter 1 with this whole litany of 42 generations. I don't know what you learned in school. I don't know what they taught you in your English class or in your speech class, but what did they say? They said, when you start, you start a project or you're going to write a book or you're going to make a movie or you're going to make this speech you got to grab them at the very beginning. You know, it's like make something really exciting. You know, have a story, have a point, have a quote, right? We learned that in school, right? So we get all this together. So what does Matthew do? 42 generations. Yes! <laughs> this is what we're doing, right? So, um, but why would he do that? Matthew knew through the Holy Spirit exactly how the Jewish people were going to respond to him presenting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. It was the first and only question that as soon as he came forth with this, the first question was, prove it. Prove it. To walk in and have all of this to go, prove it. And that's, and let me use this example. In Jewish customs, if you had land and you're in a tribe and you, wanted to, you would want to know your genealogy, back in Israel, you would want to know what that is because... Um, if you ever had to sell it or even try to get it back, you would want to know the genealogy 
and be able to prove that to be able to claim your land back. Part of that whole idea of being a kinsman redeemer. We've talked about that before. So you'd want to know that. A better example, if you were a priest, say even coming back from captivity. We've read those stories in the Old Testament. Those priests coming back, you'd have to prove your genealogy back to Aaron, unbroken, or you cannot serve. I didn't, it goes beyond my pay grade, but I know there's examples in Ezra and Nehemiah where people, priests were coming back from captivity and they were like, hey, I'm here to serve. I'm, I'm ready to go. Okay, well, okay, here, fill out this papyrus and triplicate, you know, and start with your genealogy and go all the way through. And they couldn't do it. And they were like, you have to be disbarred. You cannot serve because you cannot prove your genealogy. Imagine Matthew coming forth with his gospel now. It was like, okay, I want to present Jesus Christ, King, the Messiah. They're like, prove it. So he's meeting him at the pass. He's already there. He's like, okay, I'll go through it. And that's the first thing I'm going to do. So I was like, okay, now I get it. Now I know what's going on. So just fun facts. There are uh, 42 where did I put that? 42 generations that he goes through and he divides it up into, I think it's 14s, three sections of 14s, and he does it mnemonically. Why did he do that? Because it made it easier to memorize. I was like, you're going to memorize this? Really? Yeah, we're going to memorize this because it's that important, you know, to be able to do this all the way through. Um, so that just made Matthew the perfect person to be able to do all this, being someone who worked with figures, numbers, analytics, to be able to put together all this stuff, to be able to present that that argument um, from the very beginning. So it'd be interesting. If there's ever an occasion where, I'm just coming up off the top of my head, say someone strange walked in through our back door over here. Of course, we're locking the doors now. We just figured that out. But uh, that's good. If someone strange comes in, they walk in through the back door and they're like, Renew Church, I am your new Messiah. I just want to let you know that I've come back and I'm here for all of you. First thing we do is call 911, right? Second thing we do is say, okay, well, that's fine. I just, just two questions. I think we can knock this out in two. Who's your tribe? What tribe are you coming from? Be like, what? What tribe? Okay, you didn't do so good on the first one. Okay, because that's critical. You have to know these things. All these things are set apart in the past for, you know, um, it's a good thing that they have all the, all the rules and all the things before them. The second question I would ask is, where were you born? Pittsburgh's not going to cut it. You know, it's got to be Bethlehem. And not even Bethlehem, it has to be a certain Bethlehem. Because those are um, those are all different. So if Matthew is to convince the Jews to present Jesus Christ as king that was foretold long ago, he's going to have to do quite a work precision. So he could even walk in and say, okay, I've got all this. He said, I've even written 28 other chapters. I have all this stuff to prove him as king. But if we don't get first that past that first narrative, past, uh, past the genealogical litany, then this whole narrative just goes nowhere. Be like, thanks for coming, but if you can't get past this one, we're not interested in the other 28 chapters, 27 chapters at this point. 
So let's move on. Chapter 2, Matthew. Matthew is the only gospel that even mentions the Magi who come looking for what we're doing today, the King of the Jews. It's also a very popular Christmas carol, is it not? Right? We've all sung it. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. You guys know the song. You've sung it. So this carol, I just like fun facts. The carol was composed by an American American clergyman, songwriter, John Henry Hopkins, Jr., and he put together carols, hymns, and songs, a collection in 1872. He was a pastor of an Episcopal church in Williamsport, PA. That's right up from Happy Valley in Penn State. I was like, well, that's kind of cool, you know. But he put all this together for a Christmas pageant that he was putting together in New York City. For the most part, including the verses and everything that followed the other stanzas, if you ever go through, we typically don't sing the other verses. But it's interesting, pull it up sometime and read through it. Be like, that's actually kind of biblical. (laughs) He kind of follows through every stage all the way through. But here's my question. Because of this carol alone, how many of you grew up thinking that we're talking about three kings? You don't have to raise your hand. It's kind of a three kings. Right? Are we talking about three kings? Second question, how many of you grew up thinking the wise men or these magi arrived to see Jesus at the manger scene? Right? It's kind of, I did, until about three days ago. No. <laughs> um, I said that's really interesting. Well, when we look at the text, let's look at Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read most of this here. Starting in verse 1. Now, after... Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They already know. They've already come. They know they're looking for king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. This is Herod. Then they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, remember I said before it had to be a certain Bethlehem? And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. If you need a reference, that's Micah 5.2, right out of the Old Testament. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from then the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I want you to pay attention to chapter or verse 11. After coming into the house, into the house, they saw the child, no longer a baby, with Mary and his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. They opened opened their treasures. They presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. 
several interesting things to point out through here. I, we could do a whole lesson just on, of course, on this chapter, and we don't have that that kind of time. I just want to point out a couple of key issues, things here that really struck me. One, these kings from the east, or magi, I shouldn't say kings, are coming looking for the king of the Jews. Apparently, there's this large star right outside pointing down on his location. And you look at verse 3, and Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And then in verse 8, he even says, Go and search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come to him and worship him. And I'm reading this, and all I want to say is, Open a window. Look outside. (laughs) There's this amazing star, you know, that's pointing right down. Probably neon lights. He's right here. Open a window. Look outside. But did you notice in verse 11, into the house. We're not talking about a manger. He's saying, into the house. They saw the child. We're not talking about a baby. I don't know. I don't want to get outside of my, my pay grade here. But it was just, it's really interesting to kind of do a deep dive on this. The Magi um, comes from Magoi. The word Magoi could mean Magi, wise men. It could also mean um, a magician. It could also mean a magistrate or someone who is like a judge or adjudicated the law. We don't know a lot about them. They, we don't actually know that they were kings. They might have been. We don't know really where they were from. Text doesn't really tell us that. We don't know how many that there actually were. Having three gifts somehow, probably through the carol, translated into there being three kings. What if there were 30? You know, could have been the same thing. And how did they, my biggest question to this is how did they know? How did the Magi know to come and worship him? A couple of different ways, and again, I don't want to get out of my pay grade, but of all these factors, all these prophecies, they come from the East, they're not even Jewish, but yet they know about these findings. They know about the Old Testament. They would have to know about um, what the star meant. If they see a star in the East... What do they know to be able to go follow that? They would have had to have to have had um, knowledge of Numbers twenty four seventeen. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. They would have to have uh, firsthand knowledge, um, and that they were even waiting for it, or even to do what when they saw it. We already read Micah five two, you know that of what the star meant and what they were going to do with that. They would have to be well-versed in Daniel 9, 24, and 25. You don't have to turn there. But that's the prophecy of the 70 weeks that Daniel foretold about Christ's first coming. It says, 70 weeks I have decreed for you and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. I don't know. 
I'm standing up here going, you know, those are all speculatory. Those all come from commentators. You can get online. You can find all sorts of stuff on this stuff. I want to take you back to verse 12 in Matthew. And this is the one that I kind of wanted to camp on for myself. Matthew 2.12 And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. If God is communicating with them through dreams at the end, is it not also possible that he might have communicated with them in the beginning to give them signs, to give them knowledge, to communicate with them somehow? Again, I don't want to get out outside of my pay grade, but I like that. I was like, oh, wow, our God works in mysterious ways. That could have been, it could have been the other way. And I certainly did a lot of reading on, well, they'd have to have this, and Daniel could have you know, started a church, and they could have. I'm like, what? Where's that in the text? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what's going on. So, but that was, those were really good. All right, moving on. Chapter 4, Matthew. And this, we've been here before, from Christ being tempted in the desert. Well, what does this have to do with Christ being king? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. So in essence, he's saying, Jesus, I want you to do something for yourself. Right? But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and have him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here the devil, Satan, is actually saying, Jesus, I want you to have God do something for you. The first one was, Jesus, you do something for yourself. Second one is, I want to see you have your father do something for you. Second point there is that Satan is actually trying to use scripture to make his argument. Does that all the time. You know? The third temptation. Again, the devil took him um, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. This third example, Satan saying, let me do something for you. First one, you do something for you. Second one, have God something do something for you. Third one, let me do something for you. In a sense, the kingdoms of the world do belong to the devil of the present age. He's spoken of as the God of this age in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So why did Jesus come? What was his mission? It was to buy us back. It was to redeem us. To die on the cross, to be raised up again, to defeat sin and death. But what Satan is saying here is you don't have to do it that way. Let me... Just bow down and worship me. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go through the pain. You don't have to go through the agony. 
just bow down before me here. We can skip all that. We can just do all that stuff. That's easy to say, but it's another thing to to go through that because I think that's where Satan gets us most of the time. Satan is saying, you don't have to go through the pain. Just bow down and worship me and everything will be fine. You can do that with your finances. It's like, oh, I, you know, I, I know shortcuts here. You don't have to work. Well, I know I don't want to work. But if we don't have to work, I'll, I'll take care of that. Just kind of cut this corner here. You'll be fine. I mean, I think he uses that all the time. Remember the story of the Magi back in verse 3 when he told Herod um, that he was troubled? I think the same thing is going on here, and Satan is deeply troubled as well. When Herod said that he was deeply troubled, and Jerusalem was troubled as well, Jesus knows what the the plan is, and he isn't flinching at all. You know, we play a lot of Monopoly in our house, and have you ever been in that case when you you know you're going to lose? In fact, I know that I'm going to lose. But what do you do? You sit there and you, you look at what you have. Okay, I got two railroads. I got St. James Place. That's all I got. You know? And then we won't mention any names, but Aiden has literally everything else. You know? And so what do you do? You try to go and make the best attempt you can to better your position. Hey, Aiden, I'll, I'll give you two railroads for this other property, and that will give me a set. You've all been there. Don't judge me. (laughs) Right? So you're doing anything that you can. And I kind of thought of that. That's exactly what Satan is doing here. Jesus is not flinching. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows what the plan is. And I also think the devil knows what the plan is. I mean, he's using Scripture before to kind of plead his case. He knows what the Scripture is. He knows what's going on. And he's trying to, you know, hey, Jesus, how about these two railroads? You know, can I, if I can make a set, then I can have, you know, I can kind of better my position here. And, uh, and that's not happening. We can actually see this if we turn now to uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. He knows full well that if Jesus succeeds, it's lights out for him. So, Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Not to mention the Messiah again, but you can put this one in your playlist too. I mean, I can already hear it going in my head. And on his... I'm sorry... Yeah, then the seventh, we read that. In the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. If you turn over to Revelation 19, drop down to verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus appears um, at the second coming, the kingdoms of the world become his. Jesus knew exactly what the master plan was and had no intention whatsoever of violating that covenant. The covenant that we started way back when we were reading the, the Old Testament verses. And he will now reign as king and kings of, and lord of lords. Remember when we started? We talked, we were back in Psalm 24. 
at the beginning, they were asking the question, who is this king of glory? More fun facts, but I think it kind of brings it home. Hundreds of years ago, when the Turks controlled Jerusalem, they knew of this psalm. They also knew of some prophecies in Isaiah 44 that speak of Christ returning to that east gate. So what they do? They boarded it up. They have walled the whole thing off. Like, that's going to stop them. Right? So I just thought that was real. I was like, really? They, they walled it up? They were like, yeah, we'll show those Jews. We'll stop them. They won't be able to pass through now. If you know anything about Tim Hawkins, and he talks about praying for a hedge of protection. You ever remember it? If you ever heard, he tells this joke, and he says, you know, as Christians, we pray for a hedge of protection. Shrubbery? Really? Shrubbery is what's going to stop the devil from penetrating and causing us harm and getting in our way. We're down to shrubbery now. That's what I thought of when I saw this. Really? You built a wall, and you're going to close off the east gate. Jesus has already completed his task. He is now marching back, the glorious march back towards Jerusalem, and you think that a 30-foot stone wall is even even going to stop him at all. We have but one task for us. And I'll close with this in one more verse. Matthew 6.33 What do we do with this? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Plain and simple. It's almost too simple. I had a teacher of mine before. He said it's probably so simple that you can't do it. You know? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. When the Lord taught us to pray, he kind of enunciated on this. He said, pray then in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us for evil. For yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen.